Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. It's always a bit of a, bit of a fun chat when we get to talk about uh, investing and, and funds in general. I realized that after over three years of running the Australian Investors Podcast and speaking with fund managers basically every week, we've never actually done an episode on how do you analyze a fund manager. And I think this is going to be absolutely important for anyone that listens to the show that is invested with a fund manager. We're going to hear it straight from Drew, certified financial planner, I've been doing this for a very long time, basically spends his days either speaking with clients or speaking with fund managers. So we're going to pick your brain a bit today, mate. And I think one of the easiest places to start is right at the top where I can just ask you, um, is active funds management worth it? If so, why? So what I mean by that is, should we just have passive index funds or ETFs? And why do we even bother with people with the wear suits and make decisions about stocks or bonds or all that stuff? And paying management fees, yeah. Paying I think, honestly, I think it's a combination. You know, if you've got a 50-year time horizon and you can just put it in the S&P 500 or the ASX 200 and forget about it, it's probably all right. But if your circumstances are changing or if you're in retirement and you're not comfortable with the fluctuations that come with the, with the, with the index versus what can be a more active exposure, then I think you probably want to mix. It's, you know, it's usually somewhere between. And I'm always wary... You know, maybe it was different five or 10 years ago, but passive has always been seen as more diversified, but it's not necessarily the case. You know, with not BHP, anymore, yeah, BHP's coming home. They're now more than 10% of the benchmark. So you're buying the benchmark, you're buying 10% of BHP. Hmm. Naturally, I'd go, all right, maybe I'm comfortable with that for a part of the core, but I want to get access to the, the entire spectrum of Aussie companies. Hmm. And so I guess... What are the, some of the things that you would be looking at just from a high level? What are the, some of the things you'd be looking at versus if you were weighing up a passive fund or ETF versus an active fund or ETF, which like when you look at those two things, what are some of the things and some of the differences that you can easily draw upon in, in your process? Most of them are pretty good at reporting it really. You know, the source, as we are saying before this was you go straight to the fact sheets or you go to the detailed information by the fund managers. We get, as a financial advisor, we get access to detailed research reports from, you know, groups of, you work for one, a hundred people that are, that'll analyze all these different, you know, mathematical calculations that, that none of us even understand what the definition is. Uh, I think, but the key one, if you're going active versus passive, there's probably three main things you want to know. One's the tracking error. So tracking error is a measure of how much that uh, portfolio of the active manager differs from the index. If, you, if you've got no tracking error, then you may as well buy the index. So if you're paying someone 1% on a management fee, you want the tracking error to be larger. Uh, and you, it's the, the reverse of the tracking error is called active share, which is what percentage of your portfolio of investments matches what's in the index as well. So you're looking so for an is, active share, yep. So this is what we call like hugging the benchmark. So this is where yeah. fund managers will, if let's say they're an Australian shares fund manager and they are investing in blue chip Australian shares like BHP, Commonwealth Bank, CSL, all that, 
if their portfolio is very similar to the ASX 200, like STW, like the ETF that tracks the ASX 200, there's really no point paying more for the active fund manager just to invest in the same stuff you could get in the passive fund. And a way to measure the difference between what's inside a portfolio and the index is active share. So the more active, the, yep. the bigger the active share or tracking error um, being the opposite or the inverse of that. And I think it's just an issue you face as a fund manager. You know, when you're growing, you want to get as many assets as possible. But when you get a certain amount of assets, will people start analyzing your performance against the benchmark on a monthly basis or a quarterly? And if you've got institutional money, they might sack you very quickly. So naturally, as you get bigger, you kind of gravitate towards the index and you've got less things you can buy if you're too big. So it's not necessarily always their fault. But as you're saying, if it's if your uh, active share is low, then go bench, go, go passive. And so when we were, just to reflect on this, when you're looking at passive funds, so like um, the VAS ETF here in Australia, which tracks the ASX 300, yep. um, you want the tracking error to be low because yep. you want it to be similar to what is actually being published by the S&P, the company that produces the index. Whereas yeah, exactly. for an active fund, we want it to be different, but we don't want it to be different and then be a poor performer. We want it to be different, yeah, yeah. but a good performer. That's the key. So, okay, cool. What's the next thing? Well, that feeds directly into, I wrote an article. You can probably share the link to that if you want to, which is um, upside downside capture. Um, so how much of the upside does that active strategy, no, so how much the, the upside of the market does that active strategy uh, capture and how much of the downside do they avoid? Um, I know we just talked about Magellan in the last one. I'll go to Magellan. Even he, he was quick to stress it when his fund was struggling that his you know, downside capture was only 0.3 or 30%. So that means when the market falls, he's only falling 30% of what the market's falling. So yep. if you're taking, as you were saying, if you're going to take risk and you're going to stray from the index, well, you need to <clears throat> be taking good risk and your downside capture, you want it to be less than one, I think it's less than one, um, or less yep. than 100%, and you want your upside capture to be more than 100%. So if the market goes up 1%, you want to go up by 1.4. Mm. Today's a perfect example. You know, if your market's down three, um, you want your manager to be down, you don't want it to be down at all in most cases, but you know, yeah. if it's down Hopefully two, well, you're 1% yeah. better off. Um, yep. So they're, they're probably the two, they're interrelated, obviously. If you're taking more tracking area, you your upside downside should be different. Yeah. Um, so, so this is something that you can typically see um, if you look at like the performance of the fund. Um, they may not always have this in the monthly report. You may have to look in some other reports or just ask them uh, yeah. if they're good. If they're good at protecting on the downside, obviously they're going to let you know. But yeah. I, I think this is this is key here because if you look at say a fund manager that invests in shares, and they say to you, "We are seeking." Um, lower risk, but above market returns. You think everyone says that. A lot of people think of that. They just see like the yearly performance and they go, okay, that's the number. But you also want to take that at least if you're, you know, building a portfolio, you want to see that when the market crashes, you're not falling by as much. And that's called drawdown. So what's that downside capture? You want that to be low. So, okay. So that's number two. Number one was tracking error slash active share. What else is there? I'm trying to think of another one. <laughs> I mean, the the one, you know, if you're going active, you you want your similar to active share, but you want your sector allocations to be very different as well. So yep. looking at your global and sector diversification. Yep. Um, I think there's other questions in here to talk about 
are there certain parts of the market that are better suited to active? Yeah, I um, think that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's good big parts is there's being so much concentration, the dominance of a few big companies in pretty much every major market means there, I think there is more and more room for, for active, but making sure they're truly active. I know the stats say something like 80% of active managers underperform the index, but I'd say if you removed the index huggers from that and be significantly higher that have outperformed. Um, yep. Yep. And so how about then if you think about say like fixed income, so like bonds and all that type of stuff versus equities, like how do you analyze across the spectrum of asset classes and those two in particular? I think part of it is timing. You know, everyone says market timing doesn't work, but to a level you should be. Um, market timing mm-hmm. i think you know fixed income we talked about in one of the other podcasts uh, that's coming out you're at a point where there's a lot of uncertainty about interest rates you know interest rates been going down for 25 or 30 years they look like they're going up there's another inflation figure and in periods of volatility you generally want active management in a in a passive bond fund we talked about your duration risk you're going to lose money if interest rates go up and go up consistently so you want someone in this environment in your fixed income that can reduce that duration risk and get your exposure you know make make you money based on this individual picks of bonds that are being offered or the pricing of one sector versus another uh, if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, and i think similarly there's different sectors that play incredibly well you know smaller companies most of if you know amazon's got 25 analysts that review it most smaller companies in the us might have two so there's real edges for active management um in different sectors of the economy and asia is probably another example i think the big i probably missed the third one the third um (laughs) the uh figure before and uh, it's probably correlation so what role as an advisor what role does that fund play and what impact does it have on how does it correlate with what you already own? Is it replacing something? And how does the correlation of your portfolio change after you add it? Um, I think it's important. I think so. Just to, for people that um, don't know what this means, uh, what we're basically thinking about is when we put some investment with another investment in portfolio, we can use the historical data to then determine how did those two things react together at the same time. Now, you might be thinking this is actually really hard to do, but if you've done you know, high school statistics and you're even reasonably handy with a spreadsheet, like an Excel or Google Sheets, what you can do is you can get the monthly uh, returns from the funds. So you get that unit price, which is published on their websites or wherever, and you put them in the columns and you can run a correlation by using the, the I think it's the Corel um, function in Excel, and you just get the two data sets and you see what the number is. Now, if that number is positive and it's, it's very strong, they might be correlated. If it's negative, they might be moving in different directions. Um, so that's basically, that's basically what it is. And you can do that by looking at, say, an ASX 200 ETF, an active fund manager, a gold exposure, you know, cash. You can do that across anything and you can mix them up whichever way you like. That is the basics of portfolio construction. And that's what we do as financial planners would do as you know as as a day-to-day thing they would be looking at studying these things so you can do that how about then when it comes to looking for managers you know you mentioned before that small cap fund managers in equities and shares are probably it's probably better to be active for a few reasons do you is this more of a bottom-up approach like are you saying here's my portfolio from the top and this is what i need in it 
then I yep. look down at the managers? Or are you saying, oh, that looks like a really good fund manager. Let's find a spot for that in the portfolio. In pre predominantly, we have structure around it. Uh, you know, we get called all the time. <laughs> Someone's always, as you would too. Yep. Uh, there's so many, there's thousands. So um, it, it always starts with the top top down. So how does it, how do the allocations or how do the exposures look within the portfolio? I think we talked about factors in a previous one, which is what investment factors are used to be portfolio exposed to? Is it value oriented? Is it growth oriented? Is it focused on income? Is it focused on quality? And mm -hmm. we'll always look at that and go, all right, we're, maybe we need to increase our value exposure or our value manager is uh, underperforming. It's not doing what it used to do. We need to replace it. So it'll generally come from that top down and that could, could also be a thematic view, you know, um, technology is undervalued. So you know, generally top down, we don't care what they're holding in the portfolio until we've we've worked out what role they'll have within the within the client's portfolio. Then we'll go through the due diligence process. Speaking of due diligence process, do you always have to meet with the fund managers when you invest in them? Yeah, minimum. We we want at least two meetings with the portfolio, not not the sales guys, the portfolio manager and and an analyst generally. It's actually got a lot easier in COVID. Mm. You no, know, the amount of PMs we've met in LA or New York or Europe random hours uk is like seven o'clock our time so uh we've met yeah have to have to meet the pms face to face same as what you do in your interviews you know these people so when, are when you say it's easier do you mean because you can use zoom yeah zoom yeah yeah yeah, yeah okay. which yeah and i and think that's naturally what you want to know the decision maker yeah you do and do so do you ever like this is just kind of gonna this is gonna sound very funny for a, a investing podcast but do you ever just kind of get the vibe of the fund manager do you ever think this person that their character has struck me in a way that's disingenuous like they're not genuine or um they're, they're saying things that would be more marketing or salesy focused rather than actually technically they're strong like do you ever just get a feeling from that meeting is that why you do it yeah you definitely do and i mean one part of the meeting them initially is also making sure they know that Know, when there's crisis happening, we want accessibility as well. We want the same accessibility all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you definitely, it's like anything, you get a vibe. Um, and if, if performance, you know, if it's under, if strategy is underperforming, but the reaction's different to answers about underperformance or, you know, you, you get a good reasonable read. I don't think you don't want to base too much on that, but it definitely helps. Can I actually, I'm going to ask you just, just straight out of thin air here. If, I'm trying to get a sense of like what you would look for and I'm, without giving the secrets away to any fund managers that are listening and are going to approach you to say, hey, do you want to invest with us? But um, let's say, think of a, a good fixed income investor that you've met with before. What was it, you don't have to name them, but what was it about them that was particularly good? Like what was it that this particular fund manager, if you remember back to that meeting, said or did that kind of give you the impression that they're the right fit for that part of the portfolio? I think historically it's when they called out the shit that's in the market. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but um, <laughs> sure. you know, the the market in these times, like it's and there is a lot of froth and bubble around. So when you know, throw the pitch pitch book in the bin um, and just talk about what's happening happening in the in the market. How do you, you know, this is the idea of when you're getting pitched to. We've heard every everyone's got thinks they got a great team. Why would you employ them if you didn't? Everyone thinks they've got a great strategy. But that's you know that doesn't help us. We want to know about the decision making process, the what your view, your actual view is on the markets, um, not all the marketing yeah. stuff. So yeah, calling out 
when there's stuff around and that's fixed income that's in property that's in equities that's in yeah, everything so it's more like do they have a view on things because the best i guess that's why you're paying them right like yeah. you you want them to have conviction in that view not just come in and be like and here's our spreadsheet and this is our process and yeah okay so they're actually passionate about it they care basically about what they're doing okay so um i might just ask you just some rapid fire things what are three to five questions that you almost always ask when you meet with a fund manager or when you just even ask yourself what are the things that you ask them kind of without fail how are you reducing key person risk okay you know it's uh, are you putting uh, investing is very personal and individual and individuals are you know hamish Kerr nielsen all these guys the attract funds, all yeah. the money but it, you know this analyst versus a cio role should be very different so a lot of the work should be doing by the rest of the team so hey how, how are you dealing with key person if he's hit by a car um yeah can can performance continue uh institutional money is always a good question so what's the percentage of advisors putting their clients in retail and then pension fund money um we've been caught in the historically where it could be a smaller cap strategy has a large amount of institutional money and then that institution for another reason decides to pull their money and impacts on their you know what they can do within that portfolio so can you just explain that for people that don't know? Because this is something I would always ask, but can you explain what it means? It's, yeah, so Australian Super, you know, when we, most, you know, most of these funds might have a billion dollars under management. When Australian Super or Host Plus writes a check, they're writing a check for three or 400 million, which completely changed the profitability of a company, so of a fund manager. So you obviously want to take it, but if you're in small caps and the market cap of the businesses you're buying, probably like Smart Pay that you were talking about in the last one, um, you can't if you've got too much money you can't trade as much in those stocks but also if they want to redeem their money it's a bit different these days where they can transfer the shares out to the pension fund but if they want to redeem 400 million well they have to sell what they can sell to pay that redemption so we're always wary of too much money in coming from institutional you want a kind of a good split and then uh maybe this is too much but institutional generally pay lower fees so um, <laughs> which leads to the next point, which is, can we get a discount to your fees? Uh, which is probably the most powerful. A lot of the whole role of advisors is to ask for discounts and, and get better prices for their clients. And there's generally you, you can, um, mm. they have to share those fees. You know, the fees have to be fair to everyone, but you always ask for a discount. Um, and the other two we covered at the start. So tracking error, downside capture, don't have to go through them risk management mm. process is probably key you know long short managers are growing pretty heavily but you can lose more money you can lose an infinite amount of money if you're shorting yep. what's your process do you do stop losses do you short the market just in case like some strategies do um do you have market uh, weighting caps on individual stocks or is it first the benchmark all these little kind of intricate things that that help me to explain to clients when they under or outperform i think is key yeah so that's yeah so and anyone can typically do this if you read the pds or um there are often documents on the website they'll 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 honestly list um which say what our mandates are what our risk management processes are like we see this with etfs a lot we see um they might have sector exposure limits because then they don't want to be caught in technology or healthcare or biotech or something like that and these are really important because you can have a great strategy but if you are wrong, 
you can be very, very wrong. So that's what we're trying to mitigate there. Okay, so I've asked you for those five questions there. Um, what are the three resources that you use? Like if I'm I'm listening to this on the other side of the of the the mic, and I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, Drew, how can I do this myself if I want to go and try and do this? Like, how, what are you using? What are you doing? And how can I learn some of that? We've built it like a fifty question due diligence checklist which probably doesn't help right. <laughs> um, so every you kind of get them to and a lot of it is is already answered but all the stats come out uh there's some powerful research tools and analytical tools so morningstar lonsec i think you worked at zenith yep. where the the sqm is another one where they'll do a research report on the manager and address things like key person risk assets under management they're getting flows in how do they perform in different crises uh, and then there's a thing called a, I think a financial service questionnaire that every manager has to produce, which is like 60 pages to be mm. a fund manager. Look, they have to define their process in every single part. Um, what's your risk management process? What's your universe? What's your ba backup? All these kind of, yeah. they'd be the main ones, a lot of information. Um, and for an advisor there, everyone's willing to give you, you know, half the time they'll do the, the correlation work for you <laughs> yeah yeah oftentimes the, oftentimes so, so so a lot of these tools are available to advisors only so some yeah. of them aren't but some of them are you can often request some of this stuff from the fund manager directly um they can then they yeah they oftentimes they're asked to do the um they do things like correlations for you or they do attribution and contribution analysis which is another one that's basically they're they're trying to show you where their um returns have come from um, in a, at a statistical level, which is really interesting too. And you can request that from them. Um, the key, I'd say the key for private investors approaching this is probably use what Drew said there and have a, a have a list of questions that you would ask um, an active fund manager and have a list of questions that you would ask or you would ask of yourself for a passive fund. Like what is what is the risk? What is the, you know, the downside here? Is the passive fund better for this than the active fund? I think that's probably the most powerful question of all. Um, they, they also have the PDS, Product Disclosure Statement, which is available on the website and obviously quarterlies too. Um, so why would you, let's let's invert this logic, you know, just as we come to the end of this discussion, why would you sell a fund or if you have sold one recently, like removed one from, the, from your client's portfolios, why have you done that and what would it take? So one is changing our kind of factor or, you know, top-down view. Are we... We are, we've been overweight growth for a while. Have we got too much growth? First thing we'd check is how the underlying holdings have changed because they're active managers. They might switch between more growthy stocks to more value stocks within their own mandate if their mandate's quality. Yeah. Um, so has our view changed? Are we overweight value, underweight growth? That That's where the first part will go. Change in portfolio manager. So, you know, if, if Hamish Douglas left Magellan. We don't have Magellan, but you know, if the portfolio manager leaves, uh, that's always a trigger and getting in front of the new person um, quickly. Uh, style drift is very common. So that is, we've invested in a value or a contrarian deep value fund manager, but their portfolio looks more like a growth manager. That's style drift. We wanted them for value. They're not doing it. Move them on. Um, Sustained underperformance. I say sustained. We, How long do you need? Yeah, I think it's got to be a few years, you know, two to three years. Um, it's too difficult to make comparisons over a six or 12 month period, I think at least under 12 on an on a active manager. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
misalignment is probably the probably the last one. Is that just like incentives? You mean like it's in like yeah, I think so. Paid or something like yeah, that. Yeah, not not incentivizing staff well enough or you know you want them to have their own money in the fund but not too much of their own money in the fund <laughs> uh, then is it about gathering assets or is it about our performance so there's always those kind of more more qualitative considerations i think yeah so one final question that i want to ask you which is more like so what our listeners can take away from this is as we go through 2022 where are some like what are some of the funds or strategies that you're thinking of targeting for clients like are you making any changes and and what are you doing with the funds that you're allocating to uh we're probably pulling back a little bit on growth and not necessarily value but just sticking to less tech quality if that makes sense um just because tech's in everything uh, we're still more defensive alternatives, which we discussed in another one. So things like corporate bonds and and commercial property, less uh, government bondy fixed income at the moment. But if interest rates go up like we expect, well, maybe it's time to put duration back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of high yield credit, we're probably limiting. We're not allocating any more and, and pulling back, if anything, um, okay. and holding a bit more cash. Okay, so not as much high yield in credit. Yeah, which is a okay. bit of a proxy for equity. It has been anyway. Yeah, it has, yeah. Um, do you find, so I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but the, when you do the high yield or credit funds and you add them to client portfolios, are they they're still slightly correlated to what happens in the stock market to equities? Not too much. They're a fair bit lower, depending on yeah how how interesting you're going with them. We're yeah. still, you know, we're, we're not going full junk. So triple B rating. Uh, and junk doesn't mean it's going to go bankrupt. It just means they don't want a rating. Um, yeah. So you were generally saying average of about investment grade um, in what we recommend just because of our client base. Yep. Um, but I think as the further you go down, the more correlation you get to equities. Mm. So just to recap on this episode, we talked about why active funds um, are fit for purpose in certain respects and, and why passive works in other respects. I think that that's probably the most powerful question. If you're allocating to ETFs or to manage funds, the most powerful question you can ask yourself is basically, do I want to have this as a passive strategy or an active strategy? Um, There's some of the metrics that you can use when you study these these things is you can look at the tracking error. Um, Lower is better for um, passive funds. Um, conversely, the opposite of that is is active share. For a fund manager, you want them to be more active. So you want the active share to be high. Um, for active funds, um, basically what we do is we compare the portfolio against the index. And we want when the market falls, we want the, the fund to fall less. And when it rises, we want it to rise more. Some funds might do that, for example, by having those risk management processes in place. Or even saying things like we target companies that have lower volatility and low beta. Um, and we put that together in the portfolio. Then the final thing is, which is probably what you touched on, is the correlation between positions. So the correlation between this fund, if you take that fund out and put this one in, what happens to the rest of the portfolio? You mentioned sector, sector diversification in there as well. Um, we looked at you know, fixed income and we looked at uh, uh, equities on the fixed income side, and even on the equities. It's not necessarily about pure market timing. It's just about being reasonable within your top-down view of things. So what's your long-term strategy and what parts of the puzzle go in to make that a reality. The five questions that you asked, of course, were what is your tracking area, uh, error for equities? Um, what it, describe your risk management process. Um, 
can you tell us about your upside downside capture or can you provide us with some numbers around that do you have key person risk this is very common in small cap funds where they're just starting out um, and um, what level of institutional capital do you have versus the rest of the, the fund because if there's one big or two big investors in there they can really hurt the fund particularly again if they're in illiquid asset classes like small caps or even mid cap shares um, the three documents that you would tend to use are your own checklist use your own checklist you might use something like sqm Lonsec, Morningstar, or any of the research houses really. Um, and there's a financial services questionnaire. I would add that you can use the PDS uh, and you can ask the fund manager directly if you don't have those things. What are some of the reasons that you would remove from the fund? Uh, remove a fund from your portfolio. You've got a change in the views from that top-down analysis. The fund manager has been removed, like the, the portfolio manager or chief investment officer, what have you. Um, style drift when a, when a fund has changed. Um, sustained underperformance, which you defined as over a longer period of time, um, not necessarily from one year to the next, um, and a misalignment of incentives, which I think are very important things. So there's a lot to go on in that episode, and I'm glad we finally did it. Um, and I'm glad I could do it with you, Drew. So um, if you're allocating to funds, go back and listen to this episode. If before you invest in a fund that we, we, we profile on the show, just have a, have a listen to this and think about these things critically before you just go all in guns blazing with the, the best marketing um, fund that you've ever come across. And um, you know, then live to regret it. So, mate, Drew Meredith, Waddle Partners, I'll put your email address in the show notes if people want to get in touch with you. Also, you can they can find you uh, on LinkedIn or even at your website if they want to get in touch is waddlepartners.com.au. All those links will be in the show notes. As always, mate, it's a pleasure. So thanks for joining me. Thank you.